Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2? As they're taking their seats, I, I hope it's warmed up a little bit in here. So those of you that don't, that don't know, we, uh, we, the church used to have a boiler system in here, and it had pipes all running up through the floors, and we changed the floor plan. And So uh, me and Stan back in probably July or June or maybe even before that made an executive decision, we're getting rid of that thing. And so uh, just praying that we would be able to get heat in here before winter, and winter snuck up on us a little quicker than we were hoping. And so... Um, we actually do have the furnace in, and it'll be installed this week. And so the good news is we'll have regular normal heat next week. So I thought once we got some warm bodies in here, it'd warm up a little bit. So if it's not, we'll start a little fire or something. And we'll just keep going. I, I was teasing Camille this week. I said, yeah, we're going to be like the early church this week. We're going we're gonna to really be sacrificing, right? <laughs> we'll have coats on, right? And so the real sacrifice. So... Um, <laughs> All right, Jonah 2, uh, we actually have one verse uh, that we didn't cover last week in Jonah chapter 1. We, we stopped at verse 16, and so we'll actually include verse 17 uh, as part of the uh, message for today. So let's look back at uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2. Let's uh, read together as we go through. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about in my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down into the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up from my life, the pit, the Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Life has many trials in it, amen? Uh, some are self-imposed, agreed? Some we don't really have much to do with, but we have them nonetheless. Hillary Scott, which some of you may know, she's a famous uh, musician, artist, uh, country music singer. She, after losing uh, one of her babies, losing her baby, she shared her struggle to understand God's plan in the lyrics of her hit song, Thy Will Be Done. I just want to read a couple for you. Some of you may know this song. These lyrics, thy will be done, say this. And as I read these lyrics, I want you to think for a second. Have you ever felt like this? Have you been there? Are you there right now? So I'm so confused. 
I know I heard you loud and clear. So I followed through. Somehow I ended up here. I don't want to think that I may never understand that my broken heart is a part of your plan. When I try to pray, all I have is hurt. And these four words, thy will be done. Through tears in a Good Morning America interview, she said this. She said, there's pressure. There's pressure to walk through life as if it never happened. And you could just see and sense in this interview this pressure that she was feeling and struggling every day, even a great deal after the fact. We agree everybody has trials, amen? We also understand, and I would see that seemingly, Hillary Scott had nothing to do about causing hers. But sometimes we do create our own trials, amen? As is the case with Jonah, what we're looking at today. Sometimes trials are self-inflicted and other times they're like shrapnel. Somebody else blows it up and we get hit. There's no easy answers for things like school shootings, but can we say that there are easy answers if we swipe our visa one too many times, right? Sometimes it's simple, sometimes it's not so simple. But either way, neither one of us, any of us are exempt from trials. This is a messed up world. When sin entered the world, it's messed up. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God is merciful and that he's good. And because of this, we can sing and pray, thy will be done. So I think as we take a look at Jonah, I think even after chapter one, we're beginning to learn and we're beginning to see that this is not a story about a fish. Amen? This story is much, much greater and points us to a much, much greater need and a much, much greater Savior. Chapter one, we looked at, we actually went back into the Old Testament scriptures and many, many scriptures we've seen where Israel, their intent, God intended for them to be a missionary people. They were supposed to be missionary. They were supposed to reach out. And chapter one describes this missionary call for Jonah to go on his mission work for God. But then we see him running from his calling and then the consequences. We've seen that disobedience has consequences. Amen? From the time our children were very little, we used to say, choose to sin, and then they'd repeat back, choose to suffer. <laughs> right? That's just been kind of a saying in our house, right? When they're doing something, we'll just say, choose to sin. They're like, choose to suffer. Right? They know it. Right? So we've seen that. That's evident over and over and over again. We also learn you can't run, you can't hide. There's no distance that God will not go in pursuing you. Amen. There's no distance that he will not go in disciplining you. We learned last week that that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. But because scripture repeatedly says, from God, I discipline those whom I love. You guys were listening, that's good. And he'll correct us in our sin, our disobedience, in order to bring us to repentance and restoration. And so as we look at chapter 2, I think it's very important to understand, if you look in your Bibles, look right above where it says chapter 2 in the first verse. If yours is like mine, it'll say Jonah's prayer. Now, we must recognize that these, 
chapter headings were added years later. Those aren't inspired. Those are things that most of our Bibles add to that. I don't disagree that it's not his prayer. It says it's his prayer, but most of chapter 2 is a little bit of prayer and mostly commentary on what Jonah experienced. And so in doing so, we learned that last week that God's plan is better than your plan. Amen? Amen? And obedience is better than disobedience. But what we learned today in trials that we'll begin to explore, we'll begin to look at in God's sovereignty and his control, we learn that God is in control of our tri trials. God is in control of our trials. He doesn't necessarily cause them, although at times in Jonah's case, he did. But he doesn't always cause them. But one thing we can say for sure, he's always in control of them. God's in control of our trials. In the very first verse that we're looking at today, in verse 17 of chapter 1, what does it say? And the Lord appointed. This is in the active tense. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And he was in there for three days and three nights. The Lord appointed. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God from the belly of his fish. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. And you heard my voice. Now watch this in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, it says. I thought chapter 1 said the mariners cast Jonah into the sea. Well, Jonah, yes, he did. But in God and his sovereignty, used those mariners. Jonah's recognizing God's sovereignty in all things. He says, you cast me into the deep, to the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. And then watch this. He says, all your waves and your billows passed over me. So while we see that God is in control over our trials, watch this, this is very important. It's important that we understand because of this that our view of trials is also our view of God. Our view of trials is also our view of God. What we learn from Jonah's severe weather threat here is that God is in control and he can use and he can bring about a situation where he owns our attention. You'll start talking to God when you're drowning in the ocean being swallowed by a huge fish, right? <laughs> Some of us have been there. We've been in situations where there's nothing else to do. We just cry out to the Lord. And sometimes God will get our attention. We'll start talking to God in those cases. You can't go through a trial without first admitting your view of God and then watch this, adjusting your view of God. You can't go through a trial without first admitting your view of God and then adjusting your view in light of God sent the storm. His signature was all over it. His signature was all over the storm. It was all over the trial. Let's turn back to chapter 1. Look all the way back at, at verse 4 in chapter 1. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest in the sea, and the ship was threatened to break up. Verse 17, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Verse 3, You cast me into the deep. All your waves and your billows, look down at verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited out Jonah on the dry land. Finally, Jonah's at the point where he recognizes that God's in control. Remember the path? Show our little, our little screen thing there. Remember the path? He was in Israel and he was called to go up to Nineveh to call out, to cry out against the city. And what did Jonah do? He went to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction. Lord said, go. Jonah went the opposite direction. I understand what you want to be done, Lord, but I'm gonna, I think my way's better. 
And he ran and he went in the exact opposite direction. And here, Jonah's at the point where he realizes, yeah, that's not a good idea. The Lord's plan is better than my plan. He's in control. He's sovereign. His will be done. He not only is in control of the situation, he's in control of the wind, the sea, the mariners, the waves, the billows, the fish. Later on, chapter 4, we'll see that he appoints a plant and then a worm. God's sovereign over all creation because he created everything. He owns the heavens, the earth, the stars. He owns it all, and he's sovereign over each and every part of it. The source of Jonah's storm, his trial, was clearly the Lord. Proverbs 21.1 says, Even the king's heart is like a stream of water in the Lord's hands. He can turn it wherever he wills. Romans 8.28 said, God's works all things together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his prayer, he works all things. He doesn't say we necessarily always understand what that means. I will say this. We're not robots. That's not what the scriptures say. The best way I could probably explain it is this. From the time my son was little, one year old, he liked driving stuff. He'd, he'd want to sit in my lap when the car was parked and just pretend to drive. Or he was always getting in the driver's seat when I got out and he'd always be pretending. I'm sure most of your kids probably did the same thing. Well, from the time he was little, I used to let him drive. We'd drive around the cul-de-sac and I'd put him out here and he'd turn it. And of course, he'd get distracted and I'd have to kind of take over the wheel. At about two years of age, he was actually a pretty decent driver. And uh, our house in Tennessee, it took us about seven minutes when we turned off the road to drive all the way back through the winding gravel, up the mountain to the top. It was like a seven-minute drive through our driveway to get to the top. And uh, he'd, have, he'd be in his car seat in the back, and I'd pull up. As soon as I'd pull into the drive, I'd stop. I'd reach back. I'd unbuckle him, and he'd climb over the seat, and he'd jump up in my lap, and he'd sit there kind of on his knees so he could see. And... Uh, he'd have his hands up top and he'd drive. He'd do a pretty good job. But I'd always keep my hands kind of on the bottom, right? And if he started to get off track, I'd kind of get him back onto the road. One thing that happened, he actually drove. He did that from the time he's little and now he does it himself. But from the time he was little, he, he would drive. And for the most part, I really wouldn't even touch the steering wheel. But who was in control? When we entered that driveway, the final destination was our driveway at the house, parked right in front. You better believe that's where we were getting. That was the final destination. We were ending up there regardless. But he had a lot of room between there and there in the house. And there were times where he'd get off into the gravel. He'd get off into the, the ditch a bit because he's looking and not paying attention. There are times when I'd take my hand and I'd put it on the steering wheel and I'd have to correct it. He'd feel the tension. He'd look down and at two years of age, he'd grab my hand and push it off. He'd say, Bo, do it. Bo, do it. <laughs> we kind of do that with God, don't we? I'll do it. I got it. Figured out, God. I know you said Nineveh, but I'm Tarshish. Is, that's the way I'm going. And even at two years of age, it's clearly I was in control. But God just as I did him, gave him a great deal of autonomy, a great deal of freedom. Within that, the end result was the house. And you think for a second that I would have said, well, you're driving. If we end up upside down in the ditch, wheels in the air, it's, I guess that's what it's going to be. Do you think for a second I would have done that? No. Because I loved him more than anything in the world. 
God loves you more than anything in the world, and so he works all things together for good, but there's a lot that goes on in the meantime that we can get off track. Amen? God loves you. Jesus, given the, the illustration, he asked the question, what father among you that if your son asked you for a fish would give him a serpent? What father, if a son asked him for a piece of bread, would give him a stone? And then Jesus turns and says, you being evil, he says, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much greater does your father in heaven know how to give good gifts? We can take that to the bank and we can trust that. I must say from the very beginning, if we don't understand this point, we can have a great deal of guilt and questions and concern. We must say that not every crisis is created by God. But he is in control of every single one of them and he has purpose in it. So when I say that God's in control and your view of your trials is your view of God, it's important. I, I want to discuss four common views in terms of trials. Three of them can lead us down a great deal of error and one is the accurate way how we should look at it. The first view is this. If you've used trials, if you view your trials that come in life as random accidents, you'll view yourself as a victim and God is unloving. Let me say that again. If you view trials as random accidents, you'll view yourself as a victim and you'll view God as unloving. See, God knows your pain and he loves you so much as to bring you to dependence on him. These trials drift you, guide you, push you toward dependence on him, and that's the greatest blessing in the world. The second view is this. If you view trials as spiritual attacks, you'll view your situation as hopeless and God as undependable. Satan can set you up, but he can't bring you down. You can do that. Satan's not sovereign. And even in our trials, God will warn us in the midst of these trials. And if we continue to credit Satan for the trials, which are blessings that God sends, imagine this for a second. God sends a trial, and then we blame it on Satan. We miss the lesson entirely if that's what we do. We miss the lesson entirely. So we can't view them as random accidents. We can't view them as spiritual attacks. The third is this. We can't view our trials as relentless adversity. If we view our trials as relentless adversity, you'll view life as a battle and God is unfair. I just want to tell you, God's with you. Every step and every trial has a purpose in it. The fourth one is this. We should use trials, as Scripture tells us, as opportunities. James 1, 2 through 4 says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Because it's the testing and perfecting of your faith that it's working out through you. Now people say, what do you mean perfection? We're not perfect, we're certainly not. But the life of the believer is a sanctification process, which is a perfecting process that will never be realized on this side of eternity. We're justified, we're sanctified, and someday we'll be glorified. 
But these trials bring sanctification. And let's not view them falsely because if we do, we'll never learn the lesson. So what do we do with this? Knowing that God is merciful and knowing that he's good when we view them as opportunities. When we view God as merciful and good and we view our trials as opportunities for what they are, then we'll view our future as blessed and we'll see God as merciful. We'll see him as good. One of the first things that we have to do is don't be so comfortable in your comfort zone. Don't be so comfortable in your comfort zone. Shake your confidence in your plan. That's what God had to do with Jonah. Had to shake his confidence in his plan. And God will shake you to create listening. I'll just tell you right now, Jesus didn't die on a cross for you to live a comfortable, risk-free life. He didn't. And if you're listening to a ministry that's telling you that it's all about your prosperity and your good, and you're viewing prosperity as material blessings, you've got it wrong. Separate yourself from what owns you. So the first thing is don't be comfortable with our comfort zone. Separate yourself from what owns you. Jonah couldn't go and do God's will from where he was, so God removed him. I can just say from us, that's why sometimes getting fired at a job or being sidelined from an injury or having a, a surgery isn't always necessarily a bad thing. God could be redirecting us in order for us to realize and see his real plan for us. God separates you to create freedom, and I would just encourage you to trust him in that. Trust him in it. And trust that God wants to teach you something in this. We're going to see in chapters 3 and chapters 4, this lesson for Jonah, and then ultimately for us today, will become more and more relevant in chapter 3, and it'll summarize and bring all this together in chapter 4. It's an amazing lesson, and he's working on Jonah's thinking. At the same time, he's working on ours. Many times, like I said, when we think of blessings as material or some form of prosperity, but we see here that God teaches us that in trials we learn the real blessings. I quoted some song verses before. I don't know why I'm kind of on that kick right now. There's a song called Blessings, Laura Story. I don't know if you guys know her, singer, songwriter, Christian music artist. But she asked this question in her song, Blessings. She says, what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights is what it takes to know that you are near? What if trials, she says, of this life are your mercies in disguise? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world cannot satisfy? We begin to look at trials a little different, don't we? The only thing I really don't agree with this is the idea that there are mercies in disguise, that trials are mercies in disguise, because it's really not a disguise. God clearly tells us this over and over and over again. It's not a secret, it's not a disguise, that that is the case. And so many times when we see trials, we view them wrong. We think the blessings are the material, the prosperity are all the good things. But the good things are the trials that cause us and push us towards dependency on Christ. That's the true blessings. So I ask you this morning, what if the trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies, are your blessings? I will say this, she, she says, uh, the revealing of this greater thirst, 
That's Christ. The greater thirst that each one of us has that this world can't satisfy, that, satisf that satisfaction comes from the Lord Jesus Christ in a relationship with him. The greatest blessings and mercies are those that push us to a dependency on Christ. And I think that's what chapter two really wants to teach us here. The message of chapter two is pushing us towards a greater understanding of who Christ is. With that's my second point is this. Jesus is a better Jonah. Now wait a minute, how's chapter two telling us that Jesus is a better Jonah? I think we're starting to learn that this story's not about the fish, amen? Put my uh, Pinocchio slide up there, will you? Oftentimes when we think of uh, the Jonah story, this is sort of the visual that we have in our head. You guys remember uh, Pinocchio, Geppetto, right? He's hanging out in the belly of the fish and it's got the, um, he's on his little raft, makeshift raft, leftover boat, and you see this big giant whale's belly. I think our computer's sluggish, but you guys got the picture, right? That's oftentimes, and maybe that's even been characterized in even children's Bible stories where they sort of just see Jonah hanging out in the belly of the whale, and let me just tell you, I, I just believe that this is entirely false. Now, of course, you can say, well, of course, of course, that's false. But I think it's entirely false that Jonah was hanging out in the belly of the well for three days and three nights. I think one of the greatest ways that the story of Jonah points us to Christ is not that Jonah hung out in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, but that Jonah died and was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights. Now, let me give you a couple reasons why I think that. One, the text begins and seems to describe his death. That's the first reason. It's not the ultimate reason, it's the first reason. It seems to describe his death. If you look at this, the entire book of Jonah is written in the third person narrative. Then Jonah did this, and the mariners did that. And then in chapter two, it switches to a first person narrative, and it's sort of an after effect recount of, of Jonah taking the scribe's pen over himself and saying, this is what I experienced. This is what happened. And it's more so commentary than it is even prayer. But in this, I think we can see a great deal of hints of Jonah's death. Like at verse 2, it says, He prayed to the Lord, verse 2, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly. This idea, this word for belly, is core, is center, at heart, at the core of Sheol. Sheol is the Old Testament Hebrew word for the realm of the dead. Oftentimes, people misunderstand that for hell. It could mean that, but it's just the realm of the dead, those who die, right? We see this idea of the story of Abraham's bosom, where they were both Sheol, Hades. Hades is the New Testament word for Sheol or realm of the dead. Gehenna is the actual word for hell. That word's not used here. In the Hebrew, it's Sheol, the realm of the dead. And so when he tells a story about Abraham's bosom, he saw Abraham's bosom or paradise, and then all that being in Sheol, Gehenna, paradise, and they're all in the realm of the dead, Sheol. So here's Jonah saying, I'm at the belly, I'm at the center, I'm at the heart of the place where people are when they're dead. And he says, I cried and you heard my voice. Now, I will be the first to admit that this could be poetic and figurative language. I get that. 
But we'll keep going. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves, all your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet else shall I look again upon your holy temple. Now watch this in verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. I don't think that was going on for three days and three nights. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. Where are the roots of the mountain? If you go under sea level, down to the bottom, those are where the roots of the mountains are. And then he says this, verse 6, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That sounds sort of final, doesn't it? Yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting, was his life fainting for three days and three nights? Possibly. I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. I believe Jonah's back in his study after the fact. He's telling the scribe and the scribe's transcribing all this and he gives his first person recount of what happened. And now I... I think that's what he's describing. That's not ultimately why I believe it. Why I ultimately believe that Jonah died is what Jesus says in Matthew 12. Turn to Matthew 12 with me. Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 38. Jesus had just got done performing many signs and many wonders, and the Pharisees are there attacking him, scrutinizing him, criticizing him, trying to find fault with him. And in verse 38 of Matthew 12, says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, which is not a respectful uh, acknowledgement of authority. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, if you're reading this, you're thinking, well, didn't he just get done showing you many signs and wonders? But that wasn't good enough for them. They just wanted to pick everything apart. Nothing was acceptable. We want to see a sign from you. Watch this. But he answered them, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. I'll say we have a lot of people in our generation running around seeking signs and wonders. Faith just doesn't quite seem to be good enough. They want to see signs and wonders all, all the time. They chase them around. Jesus says, it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. And he says this, but no sign will be given to it except. So in other words, there is going to be a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what's the sign of the prophet Jonah? Jesus was saying, just as Jonah went into the belly of the fish for three days and three, three nights, so will the Son of Man go into the belly or to the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, just as Jonah did the Son of Man is. Well, how did Jonah go into the belly of the fish? Did he hang out like Geppetto, twirling his thumbs, waiting? Is that, is that, how, is that how Jesus did it? Jesus said he's going to do it as Jonah did it. How did Jesus do it? And if that's what he's describing, what kind of sign is that? Was Jesus saying, you guys aren't even going to believe this sign. 
I'm going to go into the tomb. They're going to close the door. I'm just going to hang out in there. I'm not going to eat anything. And I'll just hang out and wait. And we come out, I'll be like, I'm back. What a sign. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. What was the sign of Jonah? The same sign that Jesus' was, resurrection. The sign of Jonah was resurrection. So many types in the Old Testament that point us to Christ. We talked of his last week or the week before, we talked about King David was a type of Christ. He pointed us and foreshadowed us to Christ, except Christ is better. The Bible talks about Adam, the first Adam. He was a foreshadowing of the second Adam who is to come, who is a better Adam. We see this in the story of Boaz as the redeemer of his love, Ruth. We see that same redeemer in Christ, but who's better, who's the redeemer of his love, the church. Jesus, uh, we see in Moses. Moses was a great prophet, but Jesus was the prophet. Over and over and over, we see this typology, and we see it in Jonah. Jonah points us to Christ. Matter of fact, Jonah was the only Old Testament prophet that Jesus personally identified with. Both were from Galilee. Both were sent to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. Both were willing to die for their people. Jonah for Israel and then the mariners. Jesus for all people who would believe. Both slept in a boat during the storm. In Jonah 1.6, the mariner said, how can you sleep? In Mark 4.38, his disciples in the middle of a storm asked Jesus, how can you sleep? The mariners asked God not to shed innocent blood. Judas confessed that, to God that he knew he had shed innocent blood. Jonah had no compassion for the Gentiles. He was disobedient. Jesus was perfectly obedient and totally compassionate, had total concern for the lost. Jesus is a better Jonah. Matter of fact, let's say it how Jesus says it. In verse 41 of Matthew 12, Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation. Watch what he says here. The men of Nineveh, speaking of Jonah's time, far past tense. Jesus says, those men in Nineveh, the evil and adulterous generation who repented at the preaching of, no, of Jonah, and then Jesus says, behold, one greater than Jonah is here. What's Jesus saying? Jonah, I'm a greater Jonah, but his condemnation was even deeper because Jesus is saying, I'm greater than Jonah, but yet the evil and wicked generation of Jonah's time in Nineveh repented at his preaching. You wait till chapter three next week. You want to talk about the greatest miracle that goes on in the book of Jonah? It's not the resurrection. It's not being swallowed by a fish. It's the repentance of every single man, woman, child from greatest to least in the entire city of Nineveh. That's the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah. And Jesus says they repented at Jonah's teaching who was a disobedient prophet. You've got the greatest and you're not repenting at mine. 
severe condemnation. That's what Jonah points us to, a greater Jonah. God's in control. He's in control of our trials. Jesus is a better Jonah. And this third point is this. God has purpose in every single trial. He's got purpose. He's got purpose in every single trial. Because we know this, we also know that trials do not interrupt God's plan. Let me say that again. Trials do not interrupt God's plan. They are the plan. Trials don't interrupt God's plan. They are the plan. Talk about James 1, 2 through 4 again. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So trials are put there to test, to strengthen, to bring us through, to teach us the will and mind of God. And in doing so, we are tested, and this produces faith and steadfastness. And then he says in verse 4, Let this steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials are blessings. And God wants to teach us something in these trials What's interesting is what we learn often in these trials is more about ourselves than God, amen? What we learn in trials are far greater about ourselves than they are even God himself. Trials are for you, they're not for God. He is limitless, we're limited. He is Lord and we're still learning. Church, God never promises a vomit-free ministry. (laughs) God never promises a vomit-free life. God allows trials to purify our faith and to push us towards genuine worship. God uses difficult circumstances to get us from point A to point B spiritually to move the needle on our faith meter, our level of trust. The goal is to move from defiance, past denial, over debate, through delay, beyond desperation, all the way to dependence on God. When his disciples were caught in this violent storm on the sea, they failed to call out to Christ. So Christ turned and called out to them. He called and turned out to them and exposed their hard and untrusting hearts. Jesus strategically put them in a storm to break the cycle of unbelief. Let me say it again. Jesus on purpose, strategically, put them in that storm to break their cycle of unbelief. He used waves to get to worship. He used waves to start their worship. And it's like Jesus was saying, I put you in the storm to learn submission. What's it gonna take for you to trust me? What's it gonna take for you to trust me? See, God threw the storm at Jonah. And this storm exposed something in Jonah that we realize is missing. What exposed in Jonah was forgiveness. Jonah was unforgiving. Skip ahead just really quick and look at chapter four. Chapter four of Jonah, verse one, says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
This is what Jonah said to the Lord after the Lord, after he preached repentance. And they all repented, and the Lord forgave them. And this is Jonah's response. Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. In other words, I'd rather die than to see these Gentile pagans repent. See, what this whole storm and this trial identified and exposed in Jonah's heart was unforgiveness. And see, church, without a willingness to forgive your worst enemies, there's no passion to obey the God whose heart is pure forgiveness. Jonah had something in his heart that had to be confronted or it would swallow his ministry or worse his life. Without the storm, without the trial, Jonah's sin stayed secret. Without the swallowing, Jonah's rebellion stayed alive. This trial exposed Jonah's heart. And it exposed it as the barrier to changing an evil city, not the people of Nineveh. Let me say that again. This trial exposed Jonah's heart. Remember, God said, go and cry out to this evil city. But this trial exposed that the barrier to them being reconciled to God was not their hearts, was whose? Jonah's. See, chapter three is going to be amazing. We're going to, I mean, it's, it's awesome. But their repentance of that city was, that wasn't the issue. That was relatively easily done. It was all that had to be gone through and get there just to get Jonah to go there with the message. And so what I want to con- confront and ask each and every one of us to be honest, to examine our own hearts and ask this, could it be? Could it be those people that you have in your mind that you look at and you say, they need Jesus, and they shouldn't do this, and they shouldn't be this, and they're just hard, and they're stubborn, and all these people that you have in your mind that you think of, could it be? Could it be the stumbling block to bringing them to Jesus? Could it be your heart? Could it be your witness to them? Could it be? In some cases, maybe that is. See, Jonah's not-so-secret sin was his hatred for the people of Nineveh. For Jonah, there was no legitimate reason to forgive those terrorists. See, knowing that God chooses to forgive anyone who repents, Jonah saw the Nineveh redemption story coming, and he saw it coming, and he didn't want to be a part of it. He was willing to die to hang on to his bitterness. He was willing to die to hang on to his bitterness. Can I just say for a second, I can be like that? Pre-Christ, I was probably one of the most stubborn people you've ever met in your life. By God's grace, though, he's changing me all the time. I don't, I don't hang on to stuff like I used to. I sort of let things roll off my shoulders pretty easy today, but I can still be that way. I get it. See, God knows what's in your heart. Every secret sin will ultimately be revealed. Romans 12, 16, or 2, 16 tells us this. But watch this. Until then, until the judgment, when every secret sin's exposed, until then, 
See, the sins that we cover, the sins that we hide, God uncovers and exposes. There's nowhere we can run. There's nowhere we can hide. Ultimately, God knows all. So the sins that we cover, God uncovers. But watch this. The sins that we uncover in repentance, God covers in redemption. The sins we cover, God uncovers, but the sins we cover, uncover in repentance, God covers in redemption. My last point is this. True saving faith involves this repentance that we speak of. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Where do we find this steadfast love? In Christ. For those, so those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope. Steadfast. I like the way the NIV reads it. It reads like this. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. You understand this is the message of the New Testament? Who would have thought that Jonah here in the Old Testament is preaching the same message of the New? What's new about the New Testament is it's identified in the personal work of Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, they look forward in faith to the Messiah. The same that we look back on the promises of the Messiah and forward for his second coming. It's always been faith. And the message of the New Testament, let me just tell you something. I don't want to shatter. I don't, I, don't need, I don't mean to be critical, but I think it's important to be accurate in this. The message of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New, has never been an invitation. It's never been an invitation for us. It's never been an invitation for Jesus. We're never asked to invite him into our heart. Am I stepping on some sacred cows? We've never been asked to invite Jesus into our heart. We've never been asked in Scripture uh, to accept Jesus. Do we think he needs our acceptance? The message of the gospel, Old Testament and New, has always been repent and believe. It's never been an, an invitation. It's always been a command. Now, rightly so, it's the most loving, the most merciful, and the most gracious command in all the world. Repent and believe. That's the message of the gospel. And Jonah is realizing this, that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And idols, anything we place higher of importance, significance, priority above the Lord. And oftentimes today, don't we think we're, we're kind of more so, uh, sophisticated than these ancient folks, right? I mean, it's awful silly to kind of carve something out of wood and place it up and bow down to it. And I would agree with that, right? We think we're more significant. But the difference is the same. It's anything that we place our heart that owns our heart 
The Bible says, show me your treasure, I'll show you where your heart is. Where do we spend our money? Where do we spend our time? Are we captivated with uh, entertainment and sports? And we could name a list of a thousand things that in and of themselves aren't bad. They're good. But guess when they become bad? Is when they take a higher place of priority, significance, and importance to the Lord. That's when they become an idol. I'm sure Jonah, like many of us, had all kinds of issues. I'm sure his self-righteousness, his own self-righteous works probably got in the way. One thing we know for sure, his political views got in the way. He was placing the politics of his nation, of his day, above the gospel, above the scriptures himself. He hated Nineveh. They were the enemy. So much so that God asked him to call to them and go to them and share this message of repentance and belief and forgiveness and restoration in the Lord, and he didn't want to do it. He wanted them to suffer and take the penalty. So much for you, he was willing to die for it himself. That's an idol. I think sometimes we can be a bit like this ourselves, can't we? We won't give quizzes, but I'm wondering how many people would pass the political topics of the day, what's going on in politics. But then to Scripture, we'd kind of just well, kind of fade out there. How many of us know so well the politics of the day? And we have time for that for some reason. At the same time, we don't have time to dig into God's Word to know His will. I think in ways we can be like that. See, Jonah comes to verse 9 here, this realizing saving grace Verse 9, that salvation belongs to the Lord. In the New Testament, we say it like this, Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no other name and no one else. For there is no name under heaven given among men by, much we, by which we must be saved. And that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to just close with a, a question. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ this morning, solely on Christ, not Christ plus anything else, not Christ plus your good works, not Christ plus your good standing in the community, not plus Christ, add whatever you want to it. You're counting and banking on your salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. If you haven't surrendered your life in this sort of surrender that we see Jonah, where it's repentance and faith, repent and believe, where he looks at the direction. We not only see it in Jonah's heart, in his prayer, don't we also see it in his actions? He was hightailing it to Tarshish. In his repentance, he did a direct about face, and he marches right into the city of Nineveh. We see it in his heart, we see it in his actions, repenting and turning. I don't know what you're hanging on to this morning if you are, but if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Christ, if you have not turned and believed, what's your idol? What do you need to turn from? Workspace salvation? Tradition? Fear of man? I think we could all go down the list, the things that we, are, we all, all gravitate towards. But we shed those. And we turn to Christ. We turn to the one true Savior. And we surrender our life to him.
I want to summarize it like this, if you can put it on the screen. What we see here in chapter two is that the greatest blessings and mercies in life are those that push us to a dependency on Christ. That's difficult for us today because in our American culture, we, we want to be independent. We want to be self-assured. We want to be like my little two-year-old that says, Bo, do it. Bo, do it. How often do we say to God, I'll do it. I got it. And then a crisis happens, and what does that do? Oh, Lord, you do it. You do it. It drives us into to dependence back to God. That's what he wants from us. Let's bypass the trials, if possible, and just live a life dependent on God every day. God has brought Jonah, we see here at the end of chapter two, and we'll get to explore this next week in three and in four. God has brought Jonah to a place of repentance where Jonah is now saying, thy will be done. Where has he brought you? Where are you at this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are... uh, so amazingly grateful. Father, forgive us that when we, we think wrongly about your discipline, about your trials, forgive us that when we think that because things aren't material and blessing and prosperous in the way the world thinks that they are, that we view them wrongly and blame them on other things as adversity or that you're unloving or We blame it on spiritual warfare when in reality, over and over, the scripture tells us that you discipline those whom you love. What a blessing it is to have a loving, heavenly father that wants to guide us and direct us and point us continually when we get off the path and we begin to get into the ditch that you guide us back into dependence on you. And oftentimes that's done in trial. So Father, forgive us when we don't view that properly, when we don't see that in the light of what it is and we have to continue to learn the same lessons over and over and over again. And even when we do, we're thankful that you're understanding and you're loving just as Jonah realizes that you're abound in steadfast love. Father, we're so grateful for that. Father, I I wanna pray that There are many times, even in the trials, we know you want to teach us things and we don't always know what those lessons are and they often don't make themselves revealed to us till maybe even much later dates or maybe even never at all. Father, be with us. Strengthen us and encourage us. We thank you for a church family that can be together with you and walk together in trials that we're there for one another, that we love each other, that we're a family. Father, I don't, I don't know what I'd do without the church. So we thank you for that. Father, continue to help us to realize that so often the struggles, the difficulties, the trials of life are in love. You don't cause them always, but we know that you control them and that you're there to work all things together for our good because you're a loving heavenly Father. So Father, we love you for that this morning as we lift our voices in song and in praise. See it for that. Recognizing the goodness and graciousness and mercy and love that's found in you.
Father, we thank you for this great truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.